What is the purpose of the church? It's a very important question. It's a worthy question to ask. And we rightly look to the New Testament as our guide. But what was the playbook for the New Testament church? What did they look to as their guide? What did the Apostle Paul and Peter look to when they were trying to be informed as they were leading this new church comprised of Jews and Gentiles? Well, they looked to their scriptures that they had at the time, the Old Testament. The Apostle Peter instructs the persecuted church in Asia Minor to live faithfully in the present by looking at the examples of the past. Specifically, Peter points to the young New Testament church comprised of many Gentiles. He points them to look to Old Testament Israel's calling as their roadmap for faithfulness. And so this audience of Gentiles, of primarily Gentiles that Peter's writing to, were once estranged from God. But now by faith in Christ, by their union with Christ, they now enter in as fellow citizens with believing Jews. And they are now heirs of the promises of God through Christ. All the promises that God gave to his people in the Old Testament, they now are proper heirs of in the New Testament because of Christ. This means that these recently converted Gentiles must reorient their understanding of their own identity. They must live out of a new narrative, one formed not by their past of sin, but by their future in Christ, one that spans the entirety of the Old Testament and now continues on through in Christ and his church. This is Understanding First Peter. In the last episode, we looked at how Peter encourages the church to endure sufferings by looking forward to their eternal blessed hope of Christ's return, which brings about their bodily resurrection and also the renewal of all creation. And their endurance requires faith, faith that God will raise them to glory despite their suffering, or rather through their suffering, just as he did for Christ. Christ is the anchor of our souls. He is the forerunner who goes before us. He is the example for our lives. He suffered and God raised him. We will suffer and God raises us. Now we're going to get a little more specific and look at how that future hope of glory forms the people of God in their present suffering and trials. And Peter does this by defining the people of God in three ways. First, we are a people of his word. Second, we are a people of faith. And finally, a people for his own possession. Let's look at the beginning of this section, starting in 1 Peter 1, 22, to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter begins by contrasting the imperishable nature of God's word with the perishable nature of flowers and grass. And he does this by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. If you go back, It's a good practice to read the entire chapter of the things that the apostle quotes. The the, the New Testament is, is their commentary on the Old Testament. So in Isaiah chapter 40, God comforts Jerusalem with the promise that he will rescue them. 
He will rescue them from their enemies, and he will do so in a way that reveals his glory. Now, this is good news for them. This is hope for Israel. And in fact, later on in Isaiah 40, it talks about it as the gospel to Israel, as good news, as as the announcement of God's action in history for the good of his people. And it's good news precisely because when God makes a promise, when God gives a word, he keeps his word. His word is sure and permanent, unlike flowers and grass, which, though beautiful for a time, are going to wilt and die with the seasons. And notice that imagery of a seed. Right? When you plant a seed, you don't quite know the fruit until you wait, until you're patient, and then it breaks through in the ground and it blossoms. So there's this idea of a seed being sort of the first uh, implantation of something good that will eventually blossom out into something even greater. And so this word of promise not only comforts in the present, but it transforms us by pointing us to a future hope. So when we respond to the gospel by faith, we don't just hear a message, but that message gets implanted in us. It's written on our hearts. We believe from our hearts. God's speech does things. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He sends out the word of the gospel, which awakens faith in our hearts. And oftentimes in Isaiah, the word of God is seen as rain that falls down from the heavens, and it goes into the soil, and it causes life to flow. And I think that's the idea that Peter is is centering on here. He's saying that the gospel is something that actually creates new life as it awakens faith in us, and we grab hold of the promise by faith. And every seed gets planted in order to blossom and mature, right? The word not only begins our spiritual life, but it nourishes it until the end. God does not want us to stay spiritual babies, but to grow up into mature Christians by drinking the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And that that newborn imagery is really important, right? Uh, Healthy babies are going to grow. There are different stages of development. And so to these new Christians, he's saying, "Be, be like these newborn infants, right? What do newborn infants want? They want want milk. They want to stay alive. They want this comfort. They're desperate for milk because it is their life source. And he says that that is what should mark Christians. I would argue that should mark Christians throughout their whole lives, that that as a newborn drinks milk, what happens? Their bones get stronger. their, Their body grows. They are properly maturing. And so the word of God is that pure spiritual milk that we feed upon so that we can grow and mature properly. It is absolutely necessary, right? If you are not growing, it's because you're not drinking that milk that God provides. Now, how do we drink that milk, okay? How do we feed on the Word of God? Well, he says to us that we obey the truth, right? And that's how we purify our souls. So the the Word of God promises that if we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live, So we hear that, we hear that word, and by faith, we obey it, right? We put to death our sin, and then we find out that that word is true. We we find life, we find joy. So when we see God's promises fulfilled over and over again, as we obey his word and see that it is a blessing, we see the goodness of God that grows, and we, 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 we grow in our joy and our understanding that God is good, right? Obedience shows us the goodness of God. It shows us that his word is true. Obedience changes us. And the fruit of this process of obedience is sanctification that leads to love. Sanctification, here it's called purification. It's this process of of purifying us from sin. So when you become a Christian, you are saved from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin, but not from the presence of sin. And, and And throughout your life, as you obey the word of God, God starts to save you from the presence of sin. He starts killing it in your life and growing in its place 
holiness and righteousness. And what is built up with holiness and righteousness, those, those two things combined, when, when those are cultivated in your life, the ultimate fruit of that is sincere brotherly love. And that's why we don't treat our brothers with malice or deceit. We don't live in hypocrisy or anger. We're replacing those things with the new fruit that the gospel bears in our life, right? And the ultimate end, the ultimate fruit of these new things growing in our life is that we're going to love our brothers, and we're not, we're not going to be hateful towards them. We're not going to be deceptive. We're not going to slander them. We're not going to say false things about them to other people. So the ethical life is central to the Christian life. We, this is a new way of living, a new way of living with God, but also with one another. And those two cannot be separated. We were once children of wrath, and our past life was filled with malice and deceit and envy, all those things. But now we have a new identity as obedient children of the Father. And he intends to raise us differently. He intends to make us look like him, right? By having us obey his new house rules, which is the truth, not our passions or desires. And as we obey him, as we are assimilated to this new household, we are formed into his image, right? And so the obedience that we have is God's way of discipling us, or rather the truth that God gives and the call to obedience is him raising us as his own, raising us in a different way, by a new standard, by the truth that centers on Christ. And that is going to be key in these next few verses. Look at verse 4 to 8 in uh, chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Here, Peter demonstrates the centrality of faith, right? People of God are a people of the word and also a people of faith. And he does that by drawing from three Old Testament passages, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14. And all three of these have in common this idea that God lays a chosen and precious stone in Israel that gets rejected because it offends the people of Israel. And Peter identifies that stone as Jesus. He's the living stone that God plants in the midst of Israel only be rejected. That's the great mystery of the Gospels. Why is the Messiah being rejected by his own? Is this because People thwarted God's plan. Did sin win over grace? Well, absolutely not. This was actually part of God's plan to lay a purposefully offensive stone among his people that they might stumble and that by stumbling, they reject Christ. And by rejecting Christ, God actually fulfills his purposes. The very Jesus that Israel rejected becomes the foundation of a new structure. He becomes the, the cornerstone. He becomes the, the foundation for a spiritual house made up of living stones that offers spiritual sacrifices as a holy priesthood. All of that is Old Testament Israel language. It's almost as though God is creating a new Israel within the old Israel, and it comes through the rejection of the Messiah. Now, how powerful is this for the people who are suffering? He's saying that, listen, you have an example. Jesus Christ was purposefully sent to be rejected, and he submitted to his suffering, and God brought about his good purposes through his suffering. That will be the same for the church, that you must submit to your 
suffering, even if it's unjust, trusting that you will fall in the path of Jesus, that God knows and that he will carry you through that and that he will accomplish his good purposes through your submission even to unjust persecution and suffering. Right? There are very key truths here. The rejection of Christ by his own people did not thwart, but rather accomplished God's purposes from the beginning. They were destined to do this. And second, we we see that Christ's rejection makes him the cornerstone of a new people, uh, a new temple, so to speak, a new house, not of physical stones like the temple in Jerusalem, but living stones of people. God's word goes out in Christ, but only those who believe in him receive salvation. And in the mystery of God's providence, he purposes the rejection of Christ as the catalyst for the salvation of believing Jews and Gentiles. And so the center of God's people, the spiritual house, is no longer a physical temple, but rather the living temple of Christ. And and the stones are not physical stones, but, well, they are physical stones. They're the living stones of people, Jewish and Gentile believers united in Christ. And he embodies the word of promise that God gives, for he is God returning to his people. God did come back to Jerusalem, and he was rejected, and yet that rejection was always part of God's plan. And this creates a new people for his own possession. Or rather, it continues the story of God making a people for his own possession. That's in uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To underscore this reality of being a chosen people, Peter applies the Old Testament Israel language to the New Testament church. The New Testament church is a chosen race like Israel. They're called out of darkness, the darkness of slavery to sin and death, into the freedom of righteousness in Christ. But their racial heritage isn't from their blood, but the blood of Christ. They're they're a royal priesthood. They represent God to the world and the world to God. They give spiritual sacrifices, unlike the physical sacrifices of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel's sacrifices were meant to symbolize the total giving up of one's life in ascent to God, right? You, you offer all the members of an animal to be burnt, and then the smoke rises up to heaven. That's a symbolic ritual that's meant to encapsulate the Christian life. We offer up our whole lives, Romans 12 tells us, as a spiritual sacrifice, as a living sacrifice to God by renewing our minds to the word, by obeying the word. We are consecrating our whole lives to God. That is our act of spiritual worship. That is our act of spiritual sacrifice. And so again, the themes that Peter's picking up on is saying the the, the new covenant and New Testament people of God are in continuity with the old, but it's transformed. It's brought to a greater climax, right? That, That Jesus is God dwelling with his people in flesh and blood. And we, by the spirit, are now the new temple in Christ. And we, as the living stones and as the new priesthood in Christ, are those who offer up our whole lives in obedience and consecration to God. And this happens when we obey the word of God. We offer up our limbs and members to serve the body and to serve God. We are a holy nation, meaning we're set apart as a people with a greater citizenship, a heavenly citizenship. And that means that we live by an ethical standard that is the word of God, right? Our ethical behavior must conform to the truth. And all of it is to proclaim God's excellencies in Christ, 
And the whole point here is we can read ourselves into the Exodus narrative. God takes his people out of slavery and darkness into the light of freedom, to the promised land. And that's the narrative for Christians, for these Gentiles who are converted. They're now part of that story. They were pulled out of the darkness of their idolatry and sin and brought into the light of life with Christ. And they were their promise this blessed inheritance. Remember that word's coming back from chapter one of resurrection and new creation and life with God. Israel rejected the Messiah, but that served only to fulfill what was written in order that God might form a new people in Christ made up of all nations, tribes, and tongues. And this new community carries on the story of Israel in their proclamation of God's goodness to the nations and their ethical set-apart behavior. But above all, we are people of God's mercy. No one gets in because of their own merits, but purely by the grace of God. Salvation was his idea. He sent Christ out of his love for us, not because we asked for it or deserved it. And when mercy is our foundation, that allows us to love our brothers from a pure heart and obey the truth, even under intense suffering, and to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. That is the story. And we see that the focus of the church, if we are a living temple, if Christ is our cornerstone, is not for the world. It is, we, we certainly hope people who aren't Christians will come and hear the gospel, but the goal of church is not for unbelievers, but for believers. And beyond that, it's for God. That the church is Godward facing. And we invite people to face God with us. But everything we do must be centered around the glory of God. God sets the agenda. It is his word, his standard that we conform to. And that should be evident in the way that we do church, the way that we preach and sing, the way that we treat one another. All of that is the standard, the new standard to which we're called because we are obedient children of a good father who has adopted us into his household and will not rest until we are made in his image.